design is really going to be the practice of ethics in AI, right? It's actually the reality of designers bring into reality these esoteric concepts. And, and so while an ethicist sitting next to you is helpful in the sense that they can help you think about these things, the designer's role is actually going to be how you implement those things. We'll also start to build AI, you know, UX AI tools that will help us iterate at a much larger scale. So imagine being able to create numerous scenarios where you can test your model against them in real time to iterate and fine tune. Hi, I'm Mike Green, and welcome to Understanding Users, the podcast where I chat candidly with UX design and research professionals from around the world to hear about how they build digital products and services in a user-centered way. So what I'd like to do now, Chris, is kind of talk a little bit more about your views on how you think AI is kind of impacting design as a discipline. Um, so I guess to, to kick off, kind of how do you envision AI uh, shaping design work over the sort of short to medium term? That, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I think we have to start with what is design today. So I think we're really sort of talking about product design, UX, UI, right? So if that's where we're at, I think the first thing it's going to get kind of augmented by AI will be things like Figma, um, the design tools that we use today. So Figma, the Adobe suite and so on, obviously you can see that they're starting to adopt AI into them as part of the tool set, which is fantastic. So especially with design systems, um, AI is amazing at pattern recognition and normalizing things. So I think Figma will become a, a first target where design systems, managing design systems will become much more automated and simplified. I think, you know, having worked at Meta across many, many design systems for different products, you'll be able to actually identify which um, iterations of something work quicker. And in fact, you'll get to a point where the AI will be able to generate, just like it can with a photograph in mid-journey today, um, iterations of UIs very, very quickly. So you can just type in and say, hey, I need a login screen, and it'll be able to generate 500 of them if it needs to. Um, and you'll be able to test those very, very quickly. I think part of that too in the sort of next one to two years is almost the idea of synthetic um, testing um, and being able to use data to kind of preempt what works and what doesn't work. There's a there's an inherent challenge with that, though, and bias around that. So from a responsible AI side, um, I've heard a lot about synthetic um, or you know simulated twins, digital twins. You have to be very, very careful about that because you're basically... Um, reinforcing something that was a sort of snapshot in time with an audience that was a finite audience. And, and then you're, you're essentially you know, cloning that over and over and over again, which isn't a good, good thing. So um, you have to be careful about how you manage testing in that space. But I do think the iteration um, piece will be really great. I think accessibility will, will be incredibly enhanced. Um, you know, by virtue, you'll be able to just plug that in and say, AI, always keep, you know, accessibility top of mind for any design I, you know, create as an individual designer. Um, and that'll be fantastic. So managing color palettes, managing hotspots and, you know, 
font sizes, all those things will start to be much more simple for the designer, which will be great. I think it will also get to a point where, you know, there'll be, a, you know, unfortunately, fewer designers needed to manage those things. There are thousands of designers across large companies like Meta that manage these design systems. So I think, you know, there'll definitely be disruption there. I was going to ask you about that and the sort of human cost to this large scale automation of design. And I guess that's what unnerves the design community, understandably. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's very valid. Um, I do think that the designers that lead design in the sense of the person who comes up with that net new thing that nobody's thought of before, they'll get elevated. Uh you know that, that is sort of the bleeding tip of of design, not the, not the person who's trying to normalize something and systematize something. I think the systematizing of anything is going to become the the domain of the AI. Um, that that is the space that it will excel at, and you know no human being will keep up with that. So I think that'll be the sort of one to two years in terms of the traditional product designer role. I think one to two years too, um, designers will start to influence the tools that um, AI engineers and data scientists use. That'll help uh, us improve how AI actually works. Um, we did some work at Meta where we use service design to kind of figure out, you know, so everybody knows the, the sort of process of building AI. But what they don't realize is that, you know, each person who touches it, think of it as a factory. You're building an auto automobile, right? You're sort of putting the wheels on, you're building, you know, building the axle, the frame, the doors, and so on. And each person who touches it has a certain tool set, a certain framework, certain mindset, education, and so on around that thing that they're doing. Do they understand what they're working on right now and the implications of it downstream? something that they're working on right in front of them might have unintended consequences. And so building tools that actually preemptively hint to the, the person building that thing, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Even priming them in a way where it helps them identify their own biases so that they're thinking against their own biases in some way. So building smart tools that really help um, lower um, any kind of untoward outcomes at the end is is really powerful. So I think you'll see a lot more design moving into that space because essentially that design is actually where intelligent systems uh, emanate from, right? It's like those tools, those individual steps, the, the aggregation of those things is how you build an AI brain, if you will. And so it goes back to that concept that we talked. I talked about early on, where if you have like a a thinking machine, who should teach this machine? It's those people who are teaching this machine. It's those people who are gathering that data and labeling that data and so on. How do you make sure that they're doing that in the best way for society? And I was going to ask you, and you sort of alluded to it there, but the the kind of existing UX processes that we know and love, you know, the sort of discovery, the alpha, the, the beta, all of the kind of the the, the tools and techniques that, that that those of us in the, in this industry go to, to what extent will those need to be adapted in your view? Or to what extent can AI be slotted into, for want of a better phrase, those kind of existing ways of, of building products? 
I think that they will, and I think we'll also start to build AI, you know, UX AI tools that will help us iterate at a much larger scale. So imagine being able to create numerous scenarios where you can test your model against them in real time to iterate and fine tune um, how those things could work. I think that will be um, a new space that design can can focus on. Um, I'm not sure if you saw the NVIDIA uh, keynote several months ago. I think it was like three or four months ago. They, they showed a uh, digital twin of a warehouse. They had modeled an Amazon fulfillment center and they had filled it with, you know, fake um, people and, you know, the the robots and all the boxes and so on. And they were trying to train the the robots that moved around on the floor not to have accidents. And so they were throwing, you know, random events into these uh, digital twins. And that synthetic data that was being generated was then used in the real uh, physical robot in the real world, right? So that it could then navigate those things without causing harm. And I think that's going to be a new space is de- designing those sort of synthetic worlds where the model, the brain, if you will, that you're trying to train, you can throw at it you know, numerous scenarios or even numerous um, you know, sort of environments, cultures, cultural norms, backgrounds, and so on at it to see how it might behave before you release it into the world. And so you you can go through millions of human years, you know, in in weeks and days, you know, and and train it on those things without um, harming anybody. Obviously, that's very futuristic. That takes a lot of work to get there. I don't think CEOs are thinking this way. Uh, they're not incentivized to think this way. They're incentivized to get it out as quickly as they can and grow the company as quickly as they can. So what I'm saying is not by any means easy and not quick. And not cheap. <laughs> so at a kind of larger scale, we're talking about rethinking certain elements of capitalism and the capitalist model. And I suppose the environmental costs, because, you know, big data, these massive language models, there's a huge amount of computational power required. So I guess there's a whole thought process around the uh, ecological effect of AI. That's right. Um, at Meta, they're actually um, focused on that. They realized that pretty early on, and they decided to start working on optimizing the size of models. And so they're trying to get to a place where it's not just the fidelity of the responses that the model gives you, especially in language models, uh, but also how much that computation cost um, is is costing the planet. And so I think you're going to start to see that from a uh, product perspective on you know how friendly in the environment is this model right now um, that will be an issue I think there's a deeper sort of issue too though around reusing people's data and feeding it back to them and monetizing it um, that's another separate kind of topic that we can go into uh, digital and, and data colonialism and, I, and I've heard you talk about that kind of elsewhere and that really kind of struck a chord with me and I thought I've never heard it re- you know referred to in those terms before but it but it is right yeah that's right I mean if I if I take your entire culture and your language and start to make money off of it and and don't give any of that back to you that's not really a great place to be right and so we can we can do that now we can start to scrape um the inherent sort of fundamental frameworks of society 
and then start to monetize them. It's like, how do you copyright the English language or how do you copyright bangers and mash or, you know, whatever those, those things are that you want to teach a model and monetize it back to people. That that's when I was working on Amelia, I started to realize, Oh, we can, we can make a lot of money here, which is good for the business, but ethically um, it's, it's problematic. And so I think that's where design needs to think through. And, and you're finding that with a lot of um, smaller companies that are trying to figure these things out. There's a whole um, network of them out there. Where they're trying to figure out the, the best ways to build businesses and, and, figure out how to make money off of this stuff and and also give back to those communities. That's really fascinating. But then I guess some of this can't be, some of these concerns can't be laid at the door purely of AI because this idea of sort of digital colonialism, harvesting data has been going on for years. You know, all our phones are pulling data from our apps all the time, which we're willingly giving. And of course, most of us have no real concept of, of what is being done with that data and how those organizations are monetizing it, I think is only latterly that's become more publicly talked about. So one of the things with um, working on AI products, one of the techniques that we use is called red teaming, where we take the idea of the product and think about it from a, a negative perspective. So how could the product um, deviate from its intended um, training? How could it be used in a nefarious way? How could it be weaponized? that's a fun brainstorm to have, right? You can take like, you know, how could we use Uber, for example, in a negative way? What could we do with it? We, we could probably sit here in 10 minutes and come up with half a dozen really fun things. And then the product team can then take those things and start to think about, well, how could we mitigate those and make sure that that never happens, right? So it's a really, really powerful tool. And I think that that is the broader sense around AI, right? So you have Wall Street driving, you know, share prices, that, that's sort of weaponizing AI in itself, right? Because if the, the CEO is incentivized to just go after the, the share price, he's going to make or she's going to make decisions that really impact the whole team under them. And, and that's going to drive the kinds of products that get developed that aren't necessarily going to be great for, for humanity. So you know, if you if you start to think about where in this overall system do things fall apart, honestly, they start to fall apart right at the very top, at the right at the very beginning of how a company is incentivized. I, I've been on numerous VC calls in the last sort of six months where the ideas that are flowing around are, you know, on the surface, when you, you first hear them, they, wow, that's amazing. That's going to transform the world. But then you think, for five minutes a little more deeply, it's like, no, that's going to be a terrifying, terrifying solution. And you know that somebody's going to make it, you know, somebody's going to get, you know, $500 million to build this thing. And it's, and that's the way, the way the world works right now. So I, I agree with you that we've been doing this for a long time, ever since the internet, you know, has kind of grown up. I think now with AI, we can really weaponize that data in new ways that we'd never thought of before. So I think regulation has a lot of catching up to do. Um, I've worked with a lot of regulators and civil and human rights experts. Um, unfortunately, you know, the press, again, thinks about extinction level issues when they don't want to think about, you know, let's talk about the, the, re the reality of this, which is, you know, 
in quotes, the boring stuff, which is, you know, what is the EU AI Act and the Digital Services Act and things like that? Like, what what is meaningful regulation? That doesn't, I totally agree with you, but that doesn't create a catchy headline, does it? Which is why they're seizing on this kind of existential risk to humanity. And, and I mean, I guess that, so that leads on to this question about responsibility then. So what do we as designers, researchers, developers, product teams, what responsibility do we have then in this shape in the future, but doing it in a kind of ethically and sustainable way? What is fascinating is when you look at um, academia and you look at engineers and data scientists coming out of institutions, I think it's the, the statistic is one in a thousand actually takes any kind of ethical course during their four-year degree, three or four-year degree, which is shocking, right? So you've got thousands of you know engineers software engineers coming out of universities with no no fun, you know foundational training so the likelihood that you're ever going to work with somebody who's ethically professionally and ethically trained is is very low so you're going to have to sort of figure out you know scrappy ways of of doing that for yourself um, i was very lucky to work with the chief ethicist pretty much on a daily basis at meta and it was eye-opening, and we, you know, we came up with lots of frameworks um, to help uh, make for better decisions and unlock teams so that they could make decisions in real time. Right? It's not about ethics; isn't like a style guide in design. It's not about you know grids and typography and rubber stamping something the same way. Uh, design, in that sense, is about uh, cohesion and continuity and you know, the same thing over and over again. Ethics doesn't work that way. Ethics is very much a situational thing. Um, there are lots of vectors that can change um, a decision. So if you use the same question at different points in a journey for a user, you might get different answers ethically because of where they're at in their journey. So it's it's very, very um, fluid. Um, and so the way that you teach that is to basically teach people how to think. It's teaching person how to fish, not giving them the fish, right? And so those frameworks, those you know, decision-making systems helps them break down those things um, and chunk the decision down. But there are things that teams can do today that they can start to build for themselves with no training. Obviously, you, there's tons of books out there that you can start to read on practical ethics design is really going to be the practice of ethics in AI, right? It's actually the reality of designers bring into reality these esoteric concepts. And, and so while an ethicist sitting next to you is helpful in the sense that they can help you think about these things, the designer's role is actually going to be how you implement those things. Um, and so figuring out how to do that um, a good a good technique is writing down your principles and values. And so those things should be pretty much evergreen and should never change. And so that's a good starting point and, and a good benchmark to have. And when should we use AI? When should we not use AI? That That's a good question to start with. Like, think about a list of the reasons why you would never want to use AI um, or how you might source data to train a model why would we never want to use this kind of data? Or if we're going to design for 
X kind of audience, are we going to make sure that we get that same amount of data of from every community in the world so that we're making it accessible to everybody and inclusive? Um, so, you know, you, you kind of have to look for the, the minority there in terms of what data you can find, right? And if that's the, the minimum viable product to making it accessible to everybody, you have to make sure you can get that data for across all those communities. So th those are the kinds of things that you can think about. Um, red teaming is also a great, um, you know, technique where you, you take an idea and then you try and think about the negative side of that. And as you get good at that, you, that actually can help you improve the blue sky ideation process, right? Because you start to think inherently in a more um, thoughtful way. Uh, in a more responsible way, even when you're trying to be creative. It's not about um, kind of limiting your creativity. It's about just channeling it in a way that makes it, um, you know, societally uh, positive. So in terms of what an AI product team should look like, so for example, I've worked a lot with the UK government where you have a kind of classic agile scrum team you've got your kind of product manager product owner you've got your delivery manager then you've got your user researcher interaction designer content designer developer etc etc how does that or does that not transmit into this kind of new world of ai what what should a product team look like i, I think it'll probably be a lot like that for quite a while because change takes forever i do think ethics will be a, an issue but i think even prior to that just because of business, um, policy and regulation will probably trump ethics to begin with. Um, they they typically, you know, companies typically worry about how they can get sued first before, and, and, and sadly, before they think about doing the right thing, right? That's just the way the world works. It's like, let's let's cover our bases. It's a, C, you know, CYA, is, as they would say in America. Um, and so compliance and regulation is usually the first thing. And so whether that person is, you know, essentially hired to be in that team full time is is probably not, that's probably not going to happen. It's probably more on a part time basis. And so they might come in at the beginning. One of the things that I do when we do a zero to one sort of brainstorm, we're kicking off a sprint. Okay, let you know, Mike, let's think about, you know, the future of banking and AI, uh, we're going to build an app for teenagers, what should we do? When when we have that kind of brainstorm, I'll bring in the ethicist and the policymaker, civil rights and human experts and so on to kind of do a 10 minute pitch. Here's the things that you should think about, Mike, here's 10 things, you know, five things that you should worry about, here's five things that are, you know, important in terms of regulation, this is where the world is moving, that kind of stuff. These are the watch outs. And so you're primed when you go into that creative exercise to kind of have that. And that, you know, maybe there's some big post-it notes on the walls that are just like guidance. And that helps frame that. And then they 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 leave the room and they probably leave the team for quite a while while you work through those things. And then they can come back and review that work as you're going through that creative process. And so it's a bit like having a shark tank where they come back and tick some boxes and give you some um you know, nudges and say, "Hey, this. How could this go this way or that way?" If you're, if you're, a, you know, a, a larger team, you can start to, you know, have another team come in and red team against your ideas, which is kind of fun, right? They go off, 
and you know we, we've all been there where somebody comes and shoots your uh, baby and you know use your your brilliant idea and it's like oh man and then this takes it to a new level um where it's like now i'm going to turn it into this evil terminator that's gonna do something horrific right and then and you can kind of play te- tennis with that you b- bounce it back and forth and try and come up with ideas but again it, it shouldn't shouldn't limit or quash the is sort of the excitement around you know building something i think you know so here's a personal note i've been a vegetarian for about 20 years and i'm not going to sit in front of you and tell you you can't eat that hamburger right and so it's the same with ai in some ways where it's sort of i don't want to come in and be the bad cop and kind of quash the growth of the company i need to actually find some middle ground with you where i can nudge you to maybe not eat as many hamburgers every you know every day of the week um it's enough to kind of make a difference and and reduce your footprint and 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 so on so i think that's the goal of um this is to actually work in a way that is collaborative and productive and not um in some ways uh it creates conflict in the team and the the next episode so the next part of this this fascinating series of chats we're going to talk a little bit about kind of careers in ai and and i want to come back to that ethicist point i think that's really interesting someone who's kind of wears the the, the ethicist hat as a job role but before i do final question chris for now um how do we decide how do product teams decide kind of where and when to keep the human in the loop whether in the process of designing or kind of once a once a, an ai product is live you know where does AI start and stop and where do the humans fit in? I would say by default, um, the answer is always keep the human in the loop. Um, and so we, the, these are um, just very long uh, chained together series of automations. So some of the systems um, that I've worked on, you know, might be four or five models. Some have been up, upwards and northwards of 3000 models right in a single product and so understanding where a bad decision happens is really difficult and letting it run itself is is not uh, you know practical and so as you see something is is delivering outcomes that aren't ideal uh, we've used service design to you know, reverse engineer who worked on a product, figured out all the people that were in that um, team and interviewed them to try and understand, you know, their training and their backgrounds and the tooling that they used and so on to start to identify places where there could have been, you know, unintended errors or, you know, a a lack of um, the right kinds of data or what have you. So, the human in the loop is everywhere, right? It's like any anybody who's working on the product, it's their responsibility to make sure they're doing the best that they can. And again, this goes back to that sort of incentivization program. If product teams are running for the next deadline all the time, it's going to be very hard for them to you know take some time to to think about these things in a thoughtful way. If engineers are um, you know bonused and and performance rated based on the the lines of code that they enter over a given quarter, that's not a good metric. And that's what most of 
you know, Silicon Valley does, right? That's how you make the big bucks as an engineer is by, you know, writing a lot of code. You know, again, AI is going to disrupt this as well, right? Because, you know, with GitHub, you know, and Copilot, it's not about the lines of code. It's about the quality of the code, right? Even GitHub, you know, what, what it strings together is sort of a spaghetti mess. And so, you know, hopefully the quality of the code is also, you know, considered as part of responsible code. And that's something that, you know, again, you know, coming out of universities, engineers are not trained to think about this. And quality in this sense is not, does it do what it's meant to do? Of course, that's a that's the table stakes. But does it do it responsibly is a different question. And it's not, a, you know, it's not an easy question to ask. There's no expert in this field. It is evolving as we as we work on this stuff, anybody who says they're an expert in this field is is lying through their teeth. So you you kind of have to st start to think about that that side of things as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Understanding Users. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening, and feel free to share this episode more widely. And feel free, of course, to drop me a line with any feedback via LinkedIn or my website, researchable.uk. Join me again next time when I'll be sharing some more insights from digital design professionals. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centered.